Well, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, finished a series uh, on attitude, and Daryl helped us finish it with a great word on what it uh, means to think in a praiseworthy fashion. And then last week, uh, Pastor Neil uh, addressed us and did a fantastic job. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then Easter, and then we start a new series uh, out of the Gospel of John called I Believe, uh, the day or the Sunday after Easter. And so that leaves today which is an open topic Sunday. It's kind of a one-off where I actually love days like today because I get to sit down maybe the week or two before and say, all right, Lord, I I got one shot to talk to them about a single topic. What's it going to be? And and I know you're going to call me morose for thinking this, but two weeks ago when I sat down, uh, the thing that came to mind was death. I didn't even dress in black today for that, but I thought I want to talk to them about death and get this specifically, I want to talk to you about your death. That's what I want to talk to you about today. So with that said, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the type of God who has seen fit to give us information, revelation we call it, in your holy word about just about every topic that's important to us in life, uh, marriage, uh, emotions, finances, uh, our work, certainly church and the spiritual life. And Lord, even as we're going to see today, this topic that many people try to avoid at all costs, this idea of death. So God, as we talk about that and even personalize it today, For all of us here and then at our venues and campuses, God, may we rightly understand what you have said about death and thereby, therefore, not be afraid of it any longer. Do that in us, we pray, in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. So Billy Graham, I think, put it best years ago when he said that death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all going to get a chance to participate. And he's right. Uh, The reality is, is that we're all going to die someday, and yet it's interesting because even though death is a known reality, even though we all know it's going to happen to us, the average person today is very afraid of death. And get this, even many Christians that I interact with are very afraid of death. And so you and I really do need to have a cogent talk every now and then about death, and as I said before I prayed, even your death so that we personalize it and understand what the Bible says about death and why at the end of the day we shouldn't be all that afraid of it. And so if you brought a Bible with you this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to open to the New Testament book of Hebrews. We're going to take a look at the book of Hebrews this morning, which if you've read the Bible is a very complicated book actually, using all types of Old Testament theology and practices to help us understand Jesus. And smack dab in the middle of this book, this uh, book of Hebrews, is an amazing passage that speaks very cogently to you and I about our death, about death in general and then for us as well. And it's found in Hebrews 9, verse 27, and then going all the way up through chapter 10, verse 2, but it's just a few verses. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, then you can find it on your outline or just direct your attention to the monitors, both here and at our campuses and venues. And here's what the Bible says about death. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near." Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, and even if you haven't studied the book of Hebrews, this can seem like an awfully complicated passage. I mean, it's talking about judgment and sacrifices and realities and things of that nature, and you're going, what is it saying? It's actually not nearly as complicated as some people make it out to be. Because when you look closely at this passage, what I need you to see more than anything else is that the author of Hebrews is laying out for us a clear progression, building one upon another, a presentation, if you will, of what happens to us when we die. And notice with me how it all begins. It tells us that life will eventually give way to death, now don't miss this, for each and every one of us. So life leads to death that's the way God has ordained it. It says in verse 27, and you're going to see in a second here, the language could not be more clear, just as humankind or man is destined to die once. In other words, Billy Graham was right. We're all going to die. But one of the first things the Bible makes clear about death that we need to all latch on to is that it's going to happen to each and every one of us at some point in life. Our bodies are going to stop working, our heart's going to stop beating, our lungs will stop breathing, our blood will stop flowing, and our neurons are going to stop firing. And to be sure that this is the case, I need you to laser beam focus on that one word there, destined, because that's the linchpin there. That's the key word to understanding this passage. That word literally means to be reserved, to be appointed, to, to lay up something. And so it's like a reservation at a restaurant or an appointment that you have with somebody throughout the week or a layaway plan that you might do at Christmas time. But unlike a reservation that you can break or an appointment that you can skip or a layaway plan that you can fudge on, this is one reservation that you can't cancel. And it's one appointment that you can't skip. And it's one layaway plan that you're going to have to pay on. This word carries with it the sense of a divine appointment rooted in the providence and control of God himself. In fact, for those of you who care, it's the same word that's used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about our salvation in Christ, which we'll get to in a minute, being stored up and guaranteed for us in Christ. It's a strong word. It's a gritty word that's being used here to communicate to us that death is a reality and that we're all going to face it someday. And so what's the practical outpouring of this? Well, I think it's obvious. People are kidding themselves when they cryogenically freeze their bodies upon death in hopes that someday they're going to reach immortality. That's not going to happen. Howard Hughes was kidding himself when he hired all those physicians to somehow try to find the magic bullet, no pun intended, to keep him from dying. That's not going to happen. And Steven Spielberg, as creative as it was, was wrong in his movie a while back, Artificial Intelligence, in dreaming about a day when we can replicate DNA strands and bring deceased people back to life. 
The reality is the Bible has upstreamed all that kind of thinking already and said, just as it is destined for man to die once, you and me. It's our destiny to die. And so I can remember asking a dear friend of mine back in Cleveland about a decade ago when he got the bad news about cancer. We were having lunch and I said, are you dying? And I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me and said, yeah, but don't worry, so are you. That's a great answer. Because he's right. It's just a matter of when. And he had a great attitude on death. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. And again, I can tell by reading you guys, and I'm sure the campuses and venues are the same. Man, you could hear a pin drop before that joke here today, right? This is an awkward topic for many of us. Death and even our own death. But what you need to know is that even when God says that it is destined for us to die, believe it or not, he sees that as a good thing. And that's what we need to focus on here today. We're going to get to this in a minute, that God is in control of all this. He has a plan in all of this. And his plan is actually better than staying here. I was with my buddy Tom Schrader this week, a fellow pastor down in Gilbert. And many of you might know Tom, and he's going to be speaking here in April. Tom's battling a progressing form of lupus, which is just a brutal disease. And after getting an update on his health, I asked him, uh, you know, do you have any trips planned for this summer? You got anything to look forward to? And he said, no, not really. And playing armchair psychologist, I said, well, Tom, you know, it's important to have something to look forward to when you're battling an illness like this. And in only the way that Tom could, he looked at me and said, I, I do look forward to something, death. Now, now, now let that sink in a moment. Uh, Tom's witty, even a bit morose, and so it didn't surprise me that he said that. But, but why, even in the joking of it, would Tom say something like that? And does he really mean it? Does he look forward to death? Uh, Tom told me a while back that he does the best funeral in all of Phoenix, which I thought was a weird thing to boast about. And, and Tom told me that in doing the best funeral in Phoenix, the reason that he does have the best funeral is because at every funeral he gets up and he begins by saying, I am so jealous of the person who has died. What a way to begin a funeral. And he means it. There's something in Tom that really looks forward to that day when his body stops working. Paul the Apostle said the same thing, in case you think that's weird. Paul the Apostle said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. You guys know the Bible. And so the question I want you to wrestle with right now is, what is it that would cause Tom and Paul and others to long for death even more than, say, a nice vacation or a good trip that you might be planning this summer? Uh, we're looking back at our theme passage today found in Hebrews. It actually answers this question in a roundabout way when it gives us the second building block in this progression. So remember the first building block, life leads to death. Here's the second one, and that is that death leads to judgment. Death leads to judgment. It says there in verse 27 of Hebrews 9, and after that, i.e. death, comes judgment. And now we're getting somewhere. And some of you are thinking right now, well, Jamie, this message just went from bad to worse. I mean, it's one thing to hammer home to us that we're going to die, but now you're going to talk to us about being judged? And the answer is what? Yes, I am. See, here's the problem with talking about judgment as far as the Bible goes. You and I have a very skewed idea of what it means to be judged. We do. And the reason is simple, is that we live in a fallen culture, a fallen world, in which many times when we are judged by others, it's an unfair, arbitrary, 
quite frankly, very fallen kind of judgment, right? So if a fellow church person judges you, that's hardly ever fair. If somebody at work judges you, it doesn't feel fair. If your spouse judges you because they're mad at you, it doesn't feel fair. And many times it's not. We've seen movies like The Shawshank Redemption and The Fugitive, and we've read true-to-life stories about people like Nelson Mandela or Reuben Hurricane Carter that have gotten the shaft in our judicial systems today and have been judged unfairly. And so most of us think of that when we think of judgment. But here's the deal. You need to know that when Hebrews here talks about judgment, it's not thinking about that kind of judgment. No, it's thinking about a totally fair judgment that comes from God who can do no wrong and loves you as the day is long. And it's a judgment, get this, that's based on already clear criteria that he has laid out for us in the Bible. And what is this criteria, you ask? Well, this is going to blow your mind because this goes against everything that Americans think. It's not a judgment based on good works or bad works based on right or wrong. That's what the average American thinks. They think that when they die, they're going to go appear before God, which they will, and that he's going to judge them. And it's going to be weighing out the scales of their good or bad works. And if somehow the bad works weigh out, the good works are in trouble. But if the good works weigh out, the bad works, then they're in. And that's the way most people think. The Bible does not talk about at least this judgment, the judgment right when we die between eternal life with Christ or eternal life without Christ in those terms. No, the judgment that's being talked about here, now get this, is much more simpler, much more profound, and it's based on a choice that you either made this side of heaven for one thing or for not one thing, or put more clearly, for one person or for not one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. That what this judgment is going to be about is whether or not you have entered into a relationship with Almighty God through what the Bible calls faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't miss this, guys. This judgment that's being talked about here is whether or not we have made a choice to believe in Him as He has revealed Himself in Christ. And then we'll get more to that choice in a minute and why God says it's not about works here in just a minute. As you're thinking about that, there's only one of two outcomes from this judgment. And this is the third step in the progression. It's either you will then spend eternal life with Christ if you have chosen him this side of heaven, or, and I know this is sobering, the Bible says that you will spend eternal life without Christ if you have not chosen him. So look again at what our passage says. Begin there at verse 28. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's going to be a really important phrase for us in a second here, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law, which are good works, has but a shadow of the good things to come, of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Now, let me explain what's going on here, because this is really important for you and I to see. You've got to put on your thinking caps here and follow the logic being laid out here. The reason that this judgment 
that's mentioned here is not based on works, as I said earlier, the weighing out of all the good things and bad things that we do here on earth, is because God already knows that you and I cannot measure up to his perfect standard. He knows that. Uh, God, who loves us and knows everything about us, knows that if he made this judgment system to be about whether or not we've done enough good works to merit eternity with him, according to his perfect standard, that all of us would fail. And this is what verse 1 of chapter 10 is getting at when it says that the law, which is a standard of right and wrong found in the Old Testament, it helps us to do good, and even the sacrifices that are given when we do bad to help make up for the bad, that this law cannot deliver in the end. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 10, it cannot make us perfect. It can't help us to match the holiness and the goodness of God. And the reality is, is that there's imperfection in every one of us here today and those that are listening online and at our campuses and venues. And though there might be differences in our levels of sin and imperfection, like you look at your neighbor or your friend and say, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not Mick Jagger. I'm not Howard Stern. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. The reality is you do have one thing in common with your neighbor and all those men, and that's that all of us fall short of God's standard and perfection. And so the reality is when we fall short there is that the book of Hebrews is telling us here that we need to find another way in order to connect with God. Because morality alone, though it helps you get along in this world, doesn't help you in the end find God. This is one of the key amazing truths of the Bible, that the fact that our good works, as good as they are, and as much as God wants us to do them, because they really do help us become better people and get along better with those around us, really don't contribute to what the Bible calls our salvation with God. They really don't, because they can never be enough. And again, I don't know about you, but, but when I uh, do an audit of my spiritual life, especially before I became a Christian, I really see how true this is. As many of you know, I grew up in a, a home that hardly ever went to church. We were Christmas and Easter type people uh, that went to church. But it was a, a, a strong, solid Midwest family. And for those of you from the Midwest, you know that the Ten Commandments were essentially beaten into us from the time we were little kids. I mean, my dad had a value. He was a lawyer that you would live the Ten Commandments. You would not lie. You would not steal. Uh, you would be faithful to your spouse. You would never take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, those were all just rules that were part of our family. And so honestly, by the time about, I was about 17, if you would ask me how well I was doing on the Ten Commandments, I would have said pretty good. I, I really would, not being arrogant, but I hadn't committed adultery. I, I, I didn't lie all that often. I didn't steal. I hadn't murdered anybody. I mean, I say all that often. I mean, I, I, think about the coveting one, like don't covet your neighbor's house which today means like their BMW. Well, I mean, you know, I, I do pretty well at that. I mean, I'm not perfect, who is? But honestly, if I had to, to put on a scale of say, you know, one to 10, with 10 being great and one being awful, on how well I obeyed the 10 commandments before I knew Christ, I would have given myself a solid seven or eight, which in the academic system would have been a C or a B. I was doing pretty well. But then somebody asked me this question. And this was the $10 question. How has that helped you when it comes to knowing God? And by knowing God, they meant being really close to him. 
knowing him like you would know another person, knowing him so that you could describe him to a close friend, so that you could introduce him to a close friend. Somebody asked me when I was 17 years old, has all this morality truly gotten you any closer to God? And the answer, at least for me, was obvious, no. I was a good person. I was going off to a good college, and I felt okay about my life. But honestly, if truth be known, I didn't know God. And it was at that time that I was introduced to another way that had everything to do with Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 28. This is the key verse in all of this. It says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Here's the deal, guys. Somebody once said, and I love this quote, only two people get into heaven. Perfect people and forgiven people. And I think that that's what the Bible says. The only kinds of people that are ever going to get into heaven are those who live God's law in a perfect way, never veering from it. The Bible says that. And then those who do veer from it, like all of us, and find somehow find forgiveness with God. And that's what verse 28 is getting at here, that Christ bore the sins of of those who would come to believe in and follow him, and he paid the penalty for our sin so that we don't have to be perfect people, we can be forgiven people. And that's why Jesus Christ is so important. You know, when people say to me, I mean, gosh, why is Jesus such you know, a focus of Christianity? Well, because he's the only one that can offer us the forgiveness that we need with Almighty God. And so now let's go back to this judgment. This is why this judgment isn't going to be the balancing of our good and bad works. It's going to be about what we have done with Jesus. And for those of us who have trusted in him and accepted him, this side of heaven, it's glorious news. We're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And though it's for another sermon, for those that haven't, the Bible says justice is still going to reign And you made your choice this side of heaven to not spend eternity with him. And so what does all of this do for us then when it comes to dealing with death now? This is your take-home point. Simply put, for those of us that know Christ, there is great comfort and hope in facing death. There really is. My whole point in addressing this topic today is that I've been with way too many Christians that when death comes close to them and none of us ever know when it's going to happen, I mean, don't think just because you're 50 or 40 or 30 it's not going to happen to you. I got way too many stories that will blow that one out of the water. And the reality is, is that none of us know when our day is coming, but when it does, you truly can have confidence and comfort and hope in facing death. And the reason I know that is not just because of the Bible, guys, but because I have had the great privilege as a pastor, now don't you wish you had my job today, to have a front row seat on a regular basis with people who are dying. I mean, who do people call when, when, when somebody's dying? Well, they either call hospice, a doctor, or a pastor, usually all three. And so I've had the wonderful privilege on multiple levels to be with people when their bodies are stopped working. And all I can tell you is that I've seen way too many people die with confidence and hope, literally a smile on their face amidst all the pain and even disappointment to know that this stuff is real. This is not wishful thinking. Freud was wrong. This is not a a pie-in-the-sky dream. This is real stuff. I remember one of the first times I experienced this. I was uh, just shortly after I was 17. I was in college, and I was attending my little 
Bible church uh, in the summer back home in my town of Chagrin Falls, and there was a gal in my church, Joyce, who was dying of cancer. And she was so frail and so thin. And yeah, some of you might remember this. This was the days where you had those Sunday night services where you all would get up and share anything you wanted to. And so I was in the Sunday night service, and we're all sitting there, and at one point, Joyce stands up, and she's got her, her head covering on because she was bald from all the chemotherapy, and she was so frail, she had to hold on to the front of the pew. And as she stood up, she said, you know, I don't think I'm going to win this battle with cancer. But then all of a sudden, something changed in her face, and she said, but it's okay, because I know where I'm going, and I can't wait to see him face to face. Guys, I got to tell you, I didn't grow up in a home that talked like that. I mean, that was like one of my first exposures to somebody who was dying, but not terrified about it, not all upset and all bummed out. They were actually joyful. And then I got to my first church in Detroit, and we had one of those border guards between Canada and the United States that you have to cross back into the United States to ask you, you know, if you bought any Cuban cigars, if you bought any of this, and he would give you that piercing look, and, and you would always tell Brian the truth about what you're bringing back in there. Brian was a wonderful guy, and at the age of 40, Brian got cancer. And when I went to visit him, we knew he wasn't going to make it, and he said, oh, I'm going to miss my wife, and and my son and daughter, but I can't wait to see God. I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. And then I got to my last church, and our associate pastor, Doug, was dying again of cancer, and Doug was only 58, and I remember talking to him on the phone when, in 2008 when I was here in Scottsdale, and we were crying, both of us, just because it was so sad that he was going to be gone and leaving Linda and the kids and all of that, and Yet there was such great hope in his voice and really no fear. And I know how some of you are thinking. Well, real quick, before we get to how you're thinking, Lara York is my, my favorite. Lara was one of our elders' wives here at the church a few years back, and she was 49, again, dying of, a, of an awful disease. And uh, in the last days, I went to visit her at her house, and I walked in, and she was reading the Bible, and I said, how you doing, dear? And she looked up, and she said, I'm, I'm just studying for the final exam. <laughs> you you got to love that. And again, I know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Jamie, that can't be me. See, I think it can. Uh, last year at this time, I got called to Mayo Hospital where a gal had been admitted with lung cancer. She wasn't even smoking. She got admitted with lung cancer. Her name was Beth. And Mayo was very clear with her. They just said, you're not going home. I mean, at least not home for Mayo. And, uh, and so I went to visit her there. And she said something that blew me away. She said, you know, Jamie, I've heard you talk about death before. I've heard you tell these stories of people who faced it well. And she goes, I got to tell you, I sat there in the pew and said, that'll never be me. I'm a high control person. I don't like the unknown. I, I, I just knew when my day come, I would be in an absolute panic. And she said, and I'm just stunned that I'm not. She said, here I lay here, and I know I'm going to die, and I have tremendous peace. And I said, Beth, why do you think that is? And she said, because of him. I know where I'm going. I know who holds my salvation, and I have peace. You see, that's what this truth does to us. None of us know how we're going to react till it's upon us. But train your soul now, guys. Train your soul with the truth of God's word about what death is really like. And for those of us who have chosen Christ, and if you haven't, I'm going to give you a chance to hear in a minute, you can have comfort and hope and solidity and confidence even facing death. 
My favorite story I didn't actually get to witness, but I'm going to share it with you now, and you're going to love this one because I, I've just never seen anything like this. When I was pastoring back in Cleveland, uh, back in 2001, there was a guy who was in his 40s, a graduate of Yale, one of the top financial guys on the east side of Cleveland, and a strong evangelical Christian uh, named Mike, and Mike got cancer, and, and he wasn't going to make it. And so he decided to do something kind of unusual. He wrote a letter to all of his clients, and I have the act, one of the actual letters here, dated and received by his secretary and stamped and all that. Uh, he wrote a letter to all of his clients that was to be mailed out literally the day after he died. And, and his clients would receive this letter as kind of a letter from the grave. Do you want to know what it says? I would. So let's read it together. <laughs> It says, Dear Robert, I wanted to write you to let you know about my passing from this life into the presence of God and my Savior, Jesus Christ. I had battled with cancer for some time, hoping to recover, but knowing that either way, I would be safe in the hands of God. My current location is in no way the result of my own merits, but strictly on the basis of God's mercy and the sacrificial death of Jesus on my behalf. And like him, I've been raised from the dead. Just as he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He goes on to say, my heartfelt prayer for you is that you too will put your full faith and confidence in Jesus so that you can say with the psalmist, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Then he goes on to say, it's kind of weird. He says, I've chosen the agency resource center of the W.D. Brown agency to handle the servicing of your account. Lisa Weber, the head of the agency, is available for any questions that you might have. Also, Northwestern Mutual's policy owner's service department can be reached at, and then he gives the phone number. He says, I'm so grateful for having had the opportunity to not only be of service to you over the years, but also to become friends. May God richly bless you, both now and forevermore, in his presence, Michael. How would you like to get a letter like that if you didn't know Jesus? I, I, I mean, this to me is just such a powerful, real, even raw thing. And, and more to the point, how many of you are prepared to face your death like this? How many of you really, truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just so that you can wake up tomorrow and say, yeah, 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 my sins are forgiven, yeah, 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 I got a new lease on life, which are all good things. But to the point that when your day comes, you might feel a little bit of panic. I mean, it is unknown. It is scary. Many people like to say, I'm not afraid of death. I'm just afraid of the process of death. I get all that. But the reality is at the end of the day, now don't miss this, our faith in Jesus and the security that we have in him should do something about our view of death. Amen? It should. And so let's bathe ourselves in these truths and let's see what God does to us. So let's wrap it up this way. Winston Churchill once said about one of his colleagues, this is a great quote, he said, he occasionally stumbled over the truth but quickly picked himself up as if nothing really happened. <laughs> and here's my point in sharing that quote with you today. I just hope that's not you today. We have looked at something that, guys, I got to tell you, I think is rock-solid truth. Just as it is destined for man to die once, and after that to face judgment. But don't worry, the judgment, if you have come to Jesus, is going to be a glorious time where he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. 
And so given this truth, there's only three responses in this room here today and then at our venues and campuses. And I'm going to put all three right up here on the screen right now. The responses are that you're going to either be challenged or you're going to be confident or maybe for the first time you're going to be convinced. Challenged, confident, and convinced. First, some of you are challenged by this. You're not yet convinced. You're not yet confident. But today has been a really good challenge for you when it comes to your view of death and the truth claims of the gospel. And my encouragement to you, if that's you here today, is don't sit too long in the challenge seat. I'm not trying to scare you or anything like that, but you just never know when your day is coming and you don't want to just sit there in the seat of the unknown for too long. Make a decision. Seek this out. Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door is going to be open to you. Ask and it will be given. So be the kind of seeker, the kind of person who's challenged that doesn't sit there too long, but seeks the answers to the questions you have. We have 25 pastors in this church that are always willing to meet with you and answer questions and help journey with you that way. Uh, Then there's some of you here today that came in here today and you're confident. In other words, this has been a good reminder, hopefully a good bolster to your faith. You're confident about your faith in Jesus. And again, my encouragement to you today is apply that faith now even to your own death. I love this quote. I'll share who it comes from in a minute because it's from a very unlikely source. But one of my favorite quotes on death outside of the Bible is this one. He says, when it comes your time to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death. So that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. No, sing your death song and die like a hero going home. You know who said that? Tecumseh, (laughs) the Indian warrior. When I read that years ago, I thought to myself, that should have been written by a Christian. Amen? Should have been. But it was written by Tecumseh, who as far as I know, has nowhere near the hope that you and I have in facing death. And so if he could say, sing your death song and die like a hero going home, then you and I should give a hearty amen to that based on the truths of the gospel. So bolster your confidence even today. And then lastly, but most importantly, there's those of you today who are ready to be convinced. I was with a dear friend this past week from my first senior pastor post in London, Ontario, and we were reminiscing about the, the old days back in the late 90s when I got there. And his name is Gareth. He's a banker in London, Ontario. And he was telling me, as I told him I was going to talk about death and works and faith and all this stuff, that he said, you know, when I, uh, when I was first seeking Christ, he said I was an adult, I was a student, you know, at the university. And he said, I, I can clearly remember just being blown away when I realized that it really wasn't about all my good works or bad works, but about the choice that I was going to make or not make for Jesus. He he said, that was like a revelation. That was like so news to me because he said, I just thought like everybody else did in this world that it has to be about my good behavior or bad behavior. But he said, the game changer for me was when I realized it wasn't about that, that it was about Jesus and and that I had to wrestle with the choice I was going to make for him or not for him to receive his grace or not receive his grace. And you see, some of you are right there today. You realize today, like the light's going on in your head, that it's not about your good works, as good as they might be, that it truly is about the Son of God who came for you and loves you. And today, you're convinced, and you're ready to receive him. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take up our elder fund offering here in a few minutes. It's that time of the month where we uh, take up a second offering for those in need in our community and in our church. And we're going to do that at our campuses and here at, at, at the Shea campus and the worship center. But before I do that, I want to pray with you. And specifically, I want to pray with those of you who are ready to receive Christ today for the first time so that you may truly know what's going to happen to you and where you are going when you die. So every head bowed right now, campuses and venue, all of our heads bowed. And and let's spend just a few moments with God, but life-changing moments for some of us here today. Father God, I thank you that you are the type of father and friend and savior that has chosen to reach out to us in our ignorance and tell us who you are and what you are about. And I thank you, God, that even when we talk about this subject of death, that is foreboding as it might be to many people today, that for the Christian, for those who have found Christ, it need not be that at all. And that, Father, we can truly enter in to whenever our day is with confidence, even joy, anticipating the presence of Christ, waiting for us on the other side to welcome us home to our final resting place. Father, I pray that for those here today that are ready to place their faith in Jesus for the very, very first time, that right where they sit, they pray this prayer. They say, oh God, thank you that you love me, that you made me, that from time past you have overseen my life up to this day right here at this point. And God, I realize that I'm not a perfect person, therefore that plan is gone, and that God, I'm a person in need of forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. And I thank you, God, that that forgiveness has been provided for me by Jesus, whom I joyfully receive into my life right now as my Savior and as my Lord. I invite you to come and be the center of my life and the only one who can give me the forgiveness and the eternal life that I long for. Father, I pray that as anybody has prayed that prayer here today, that God, you would give them that initial burst of assurance that they need that you are theirs and they are yours and that as Jesus says, no one can now snatch them out of your hand, that they are eternally secure in you. And we are grateful for that. Lord, for the rest of us, we go out here today hopefully pondering the truthfulness of your word, the truthfulness of life in Christ and Lord, all that it contains. And that Lord, there is nothing that can ever separate us from you. If God be for us, who can be against us? God, thank you for this faith building day. Thank you for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together.